Chapter twenty five of Max by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter twenty five. It was the morning after the reunion, the morning after the catastrophe, and Blake was breakfasting alone in his rooms. Typically Parisian rooms they were, rooms that stood closed and silent for more than half the year, and woke to offer him a welcome when his wandering footsteps turned periodically towards Paris typically a Parisian, with their long windows and stiffly draped curtains, their marble mantelpieces and gilt-framed mirrors, their furniture arranged with a suggestion of ancient formality that by its very rigidity soothed the eye. At the moment, evidences of Blake's unusually long occupancy broke this stiffness in many directions. Intimate trifles that speak a man's presence were strewn here and there. Objects of utility, objects of value and interest gathered upon his last long journey. Eminently pleasant the salon appeared in the sunshine of the May morning, full of air and light, its grey carpet and grey-panelled walls making an agreeably neutral setting to the household gods of a gentleman of leisure. But the gentleman in question, so agreeably situated, seemed to find his state less gratifying than it might appear. A sense of dissatisfaction possessed him as he sat at his solitary meal, a sense of dullness and lost, most tenacious of hold. More than once he roundly called himself a fool. More than once he shook out the thin sheets of his morning paper and buried himself in their contents, but unavailingly. The feeling of flatness, the sense of dissatisfaction with the world as it stood, grew instead of diminishing. At last, throwing down the paper, he gave up the unequal struggle and yielded to the pessimistic pleasure of self-analysis. He recalled last night and its vexatious trend of events, and with something akin to shame he remembered his anger against Max. But although he admitted its possible exaggeration, the admission brought no palliation of Max's offence. He possibly had behaved like a brute, but Max had behaved like an imbecile. At this point he fell to staring fixedly in front of him, and through the meshes of his daydream floated a face, not the face of the boy he was condemning, but that of the mysterious cause of last night's calamity. He conjured it with quite astonishing vividness, the face of the portrait, the face so like, so unlike, the boy's. Every detail of the picture assailed him, the subtle illusion of the mirror, the strange reflected eyes propounding their riddle. Looking in imagination into those eyes, he lost himself delightfully. Sensations, periods of time passed and repassed in his brain, speculation, desire, and memory danced an enchanting, tangled measure. He recalled the hundred fancies that had held, or failed to hold him, in his thirty-eight years. He recalled the women who had loved too little, the women who had loved too much. And, quick upon the recollection, came the consciousness of the disillusion that had inevitably followed upon adventure. He did not ask himself why these dreams should stir, why these ghosts should materialise and kiss light hands to him in the blue brilliance of this May morning. He realised nothing but that behind them all, a reality in a world of shadows. He saw the eyes of the picture insistently propounding their riddle. The riddle, the question that from youth upward had rankled, inarticulate, in his own soul. It arose now, renewed with his acknowledgement of it, the troubling, insistent question that cries in every human brain, sometimes softly, like a child sobbing outside a closed door, sometimes loudly and terribly, like a man in agony, 
the eternal question ringing through the ages. He recognised it, clear as the spoken word in this unknown woman's gaze, and for the first time in all his life the desire to make answer quickened within him. He, who had invariably sought, invariably questioned, suddenly craved to make reply. An incurable dreamer, the fancy took him, and he yielded to its glamour. How delightful to know and study that exquisite face! How fascinating beyond all words to catch the fleeting semblance of his charming Max, to lose it in the woman's seriousness, to touch it again in some gleam of boyish humour. It was a quaint conceit, apart from untouched by any previous experience. Its subtlety possessed him. Existence suddenly took on form and purpose. The depression, the sense of loss dispersed as morning clouds before the sun. He rose, forgetful of his unfinished meal, his vitality stirring, his curiosity kindling as it had not kindled for years. What, all things reckoned, stood between him and this alluring study? A boy, a mere boy. No thought came to him of the boy himself, the instrument of the desire. No thought came, for every human creature is a pure egoist in the first stirring of a passion, and stalks his quarry with blind haste, fearful that at any term he may be balked by time or circumstance. Later, when grief has chastened or joy cleansed him, the altruist may peep forth, but never in the primary moment. With no thought of the clinging hands and beseeching voice of last night, with no knowledge of a mournful figure that had dragged itself up the stairway of the house in the Rue Muller and sobbed itself to sleep in a lonely bed, he walked across the room to his writing-table and calmly picked up a pen. He dipped the pen into the ink and selected a sheet of notepaper. Then, as he bent to write, impatience seized him. He tore the paper across and took up a telegraph form. On this he wrote the simple message. Will you allow me to meet your sister? Ned. It was brief, it was informal, it was entirely unjustifiable. But what circumstance in his relation to the boy had lent itself either to formality or justification? He rang the bell, dispatched his message, and then sat down to wait. His attitude in that matter of waiting was entirely characteristic. He did not arrange his action in the event of defeat. He did not speculate upon probable triumph. The affair had passed out of his hands. The future was upon the knees of the gods. He did not finish his breakfast in that time of probation. He did not again take up the paper he had thrown aside. He made no effort to occupy or to amuse himself. He merely waited. And in due time the gods gave him a sign, a telegraphic message, brief and concise as his own. Come to-night at ten. She will be here. Max. End of chapter 25